0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in depth Old Testament Bible study. This brought to you from the Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 18, Judges chapter 11, the conclusion. Well, when last we met, we read in Judges 11 about the newest judge, Yiftah, or Jephthah in the English who lived in a place called Gilead. Gilead was on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, he'd been driven out of his family home because he was an illegitimate son of his father Gideon, and Gideon's legitimate sons didn't want their inheritance to be jeopardized by having to give an equal portion of it to this Jephthah. Even more, Yivtok's mother was a prostitute thus making Yiftak a social outcast. Gideon's sons didn't want such a degrading association within their immediate family. Now, Yiftak had gone off and created a gang of desert pirates who raided caravans and villages and generally also hired themselves out as mercenaries to rich men and to minor potentates in order to make a, a living. Now, as unsavory as all that might seem to us, such a profession wasn't entirely looked down upon in those days as it might be in the more modern times in the Western world. Jephthah would have been viewed more as a a, a misbehaving brother than as a despicable and immoral thug. As as could be seen with the earlier story in the book of Judges of that self-appointed king, Abimelech, and the man who would depose him, Gael... Okay. The creation of these, these bands of bandits were rather usual. They weren't at all universally rejected by the people. In fact, a certain kind of admiration akin to that given to Robin Hood all right, was more the attitude within the Middle Eastern cultures about these bands of bandits. Well, the leading men of Gilead regarded Jephthah as a brave and cunning military leader. Thus, when the king of Ammon declared war upon the territory of Gilead, these leading men realized that they had no qualified field general to lead their militia, so they sought out Yiphthah. And a contingent of elders from Gilead, some of them even from among Yiphthah's own family, went to Yiphthah hat in hand and offered him the job. Obviously, there would have to be something substantial in it for Jephthah if he was going to risk his life to fight for the very people who had despised him and run him off. And that something substantial was the guarantee that he would become the leader over all of Gilead. Well, the agreement was sealed with a covenant and an oath spoken at the Israelite (laughs) army headquarters in Mitzpah. Now, before we read more of Judges 11, let me also remind you of the parallel I drew last week between the cause of this conflict between the king of Ammon and Israel versus the modern conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis. The king of Ammon said that he wanted the land that belonged to the Ammonites returned to him. And if Israel would just do that peacefully, there'd be no conflict. The problem is that Ammon never in history held the land that they wanted Israel to give to them. Gilead. And when we look at a map, we can see that Ammon proper lay to the east of Gilead. When Israel was on its Exodus journey from Egypt to Canaan, it was this powerful tribal nation called the Amorites who ruled over an area that would eventually be known as Gilead, as well as an area, by the way, um, that would that Manasseh would control, which is a little more up and up in this area, a little bit more north. It was these Amorites who attacked Israel and then were subsequently defeated. Israel recognized Ammon's territorial rights and so generally left it alone. But again, Ammon was located further to the east. It wasn't involved in the conflict between the Amorites and Israel. But apparently, some Ammonites had lived in that area that was now Gilead. And the king of Ammon was going to use that as an excuse to declare that Israel had no right to the land they had held since their exodus from Egypt over 300 years earlier. Bottom line, Ammon was making a bogus claim for the land of Gilead. Ammon had never in history occupied or ruled over the area of Gilead. Now, when Yiftok heard that this was their demand, he firmly rebuffed the king of Ammon, told him his facts were in error. And he had no intention of giving up his land to Ammon. He'd like to have peace, but he wasn't going to give them their land. Well, in our time, we see this same thing happening between the Palestinians and Israel. The Palestinians manufacturing a bogus claim and then demanding Israel to comply or they're going to cause a never-ending conflict. Because it's so important, let me state again for the record that prior to 1967, there never was a people called the Palestinians. Nor was there ever a nation of Palestinians anywhere, let alone the land of Israel. The Palestinians are simply expatriates of various Arab nations who came to Israel after Israel was reborn as a nation to find work. But when the Arab League attacked Israel with their mighty combined armies, these Arab workers fled to Jordan en masse with their expectation that they would return home and then have their choice of any former Jewish house that they wanted. That was the deal that was made with them. Of course, Israel beat back their attackers and of course, they weren't now about to allow those Arab workers who were loyal to the Arab League back into Israel from Jordan. The Arab nations from which these workers came refused to allow these Arab peasants to return to their home nations. So now they were refugees. The strategy was to use these displaced Arabs as pawns to achieve the Arab League's political demands that Israel be turned over to the Arabs and then rid of Jews. Suddenly these so-called Palestinians are an ancient people who'd been expelled from their land that's now occupied by these Jews and the Jews are the bad guys. The media is complicit in this great lie. The Western world including the USA is so interested in maintaining a good enough relationship with the Arabs so that the flow of Middle Eastern oil continues that they're all willing to sacrifice Israel to the Palestinians as a peace offering. The main difference in how this matter same matter was handled between the time of the judges and now is that Jephthah told the king of Ammon that his demand was ludicrous, that he was a liar, and and that Israel wasn't going to give up one square inch even to make peace. Today, the leaders of Israel are simply spineless politicians who want to maintain their jobs. And they want to be appreciated and accepted by the Western world. Thus, they see only compromise and appeasement is the correct path so it's not a question among modern Israeli leaders of whether to give up Israel to the Palestinians it's only which part of Israel's land and how much and what kind of hollow promises for peace they can get in return that sure wasn't Jephthah's way turn your Bibles to Judges 11 we're going to read 11 29 to the end 285 in your complete Jewish Bible. Then the spirit of Adonai came upon Yishtar, and he passed through Gilead and Manesha, on through Mitzpah of Gilead, and from there over to the people of Ammon. And Yishtar made a vow to Adonai, If you will hand the people of Ammon over to me, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return In peace from the people of Ammon will belong to Adonai. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So Yiftah crossed over to fight the people of Ammon. And Adonai handed them over to him. He killed them from Aruer until you reach Manit, 20 cities all the way to Avel Kramim. It was a massacre. So the people of Ammon were defeated before the people of Israel now as Yistak was returning to his house in Mitzpah his daughter came dancing out to meet him with tambourines she was his only child he had no other son or daughter when he saw her he tore his clothes and said oh no my daughter you're breaking my heart why must you be the cause of such pain to me I made a vow to Adonai I can't go back on my word and she said to him father you made a vow to Adonai so do whatever you said you would do to me Because Adonai did take vengeance on your enemies, the people of Ammon. And then she said to her father, just do this one thing for me. Let me be alone for two months. I'll go away into the mountains with my friends and mourn because I will die without getting married. You may go, he answered. And he sent her away for two months. She left, she and her friends, and mourned in the mountains that she would die unmarried. And after two months she returned to her father and he did with her what he had vowed. She had remained a virgin. So it became a law in Israel that the women of Israel would go every year for four days to lament the daughter of Yiftach from Gilead. The first words of verse 29 say, that it was only at this point after Yiftah had been chosen to lead Israel's militia and after this diplomatic confrontation with the king of Ammon that the Lord moved and anointed Jephthah as a shofet. Thus we see the phrase that then the spirit of Adonai came upon Yiftah. Well, in Hebrew it says that the Ruach of Yehovah Hayah Yiftach. Now back in our study of Judges chapter 3, we discussed this, that this concept of the Spirit of God covering or anointing or coming upon a man, in this case a judge, was generally expressed using one or the other of two different Hebrew words. Labesh or Hayah. And these two words represented substantially different ways in which the Spirit of the Lord would act upon a human. Labesh meant to clothe a person in the Holy Spirit, like putting on a garment. In such a way that that person took on a certain amount of divine power that enabled him to do miraculous deeds or even to gain superhuman strength or, or, or insight. But here in Judges 11... It's the word hayah that is used, and it indicates that Yehovah's spirit overcomes a man in such a way that the man becomes especially obedient to the Lord. Or that the Lord's will operates in that man in such a powerful way that it basically replaces that man's own will to some degree. So Yiphtar was operating very much in the Lord's will, but as we're going to see, obviously not entirely. Here this move of the Holy Spirit upon Yiphtar represents that moment in which Jephtar's status changed. He went from being a normal, run-of-the-mill human leader to a divinely appointed judge for God. The first thing Iftah did was to travel through the land of Gilead and the tribal territory of Manasseh, that was that half-tribe of Manasseh that lived in the Transjordan, and add it to the size of the Israeli militia to prepare for the coming battle with the forces of Ammon. And once he did that, he acted in a way that has perplexed and bothered Jews and Christians for centuries. In anticipation of going to war, Yiftah made a vow to the God of Israel, a very rash vow that would cause him the greatest pain. Now it is this vow that form, forms one of the most infamous stories in the entire Bible, and therefore it's usually the focus of the study Of Judges chapter 11. Now we're going to dissect it pretty carefully, although in some ways I'm not sure how deserving of our time or attention it actually is or how theologically significant it is. But because there's so much controversy about that story, it's just not possible for me not to address it head on. Now the issue is that to seek God's favor. Jephthah vows to Jehovah to offer as a sacrifice the first thing that walks through his door to greet him as he returns from battling the Ammonites assuming that it's going to be an Israelite victory and the reason for the vow was Jephthah's recognition for the need of divine intervention because indeed this was going to be a holy war now in verse 34 we read that Jephthah was victorious and when he arrived home his daughter came out the door to greet him. And Jephthah was devastated because he felt he could not go back on his vow to God since God had indeed given Israel victory so he felt he was stuck carrying through his promise to Yehoveh. Now Jephthah saw a direct connection between his vow and his complete victory over Ammon now whether there was a real connection or not his ancient oriental mind assumed it was now his daughter made it clear that she understood that her father had no choice and in a selfless gesture told him that she that he should do to her what he had vowed and we're told in verse 39 that after a two month reprieve her father, her father followed through with this with his promise to god now of all the issues That these passages bring up, the one, of course, that causes the most controversy is whether or not Jephthah actually made a human sacrifice of his daughter. Or whether he did something else with her that didn't involve her death. And that's what we're going to explore. But first we must set the stage for this. If we're going to do more than just use our own sensibilities and our own opinions, and various denominational doctrines is the unequivocal and rigid answer to this dilemma. Let's start with the nature of the vow itself, as stated in verse 31. Now, the usual English rendering, probably in most of your Bibles, of the original Hebrew is that Yiftach vows to God that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, will be offered to Adonai as a burnt offering. So the first key word of this sentence is whatever. Whatever is a very poor translation that reflects a a predisposition of the translator to what he thinks was in Jephthah's mind when he made that vow. See, the Hebrew word used here is asher. S-H-E-R, asher and it decidedly does not mean whatever, or whatsoever. It means who. It can mean which, and to a lesser degree it can mean that. This is very important, because by slightly altering the meaning of the word share to whatever, it means that anything that comes out of the door first upon Yiftok's triumphal return home will be sacrificed could be an animal could be a human but if we correctly translate Asher as whoever or whichever then it points towards that offer of a sacrifice being a human with the only question being which human now obviously As we all know the word what refers to an it and the word who refers to a person we don't call people it and we don't call animals who in other words it's become a rather standard Christian apologetic to explain that when Jephthah made that rash vow to the Lord what he innocently had in mind is that some kind of an animal would be the first thing out of the door to greet him, and thus he would use that animal as a sacrifice to God. But in addition to the fact that using the term asher refers to a person, not an animal, is that even if it was referring to an animal, it's still very problematic. The problem is that clean and unclean animals mingled and lived together in and around Hebrew households. Dogs and chickens live side by side with sheep, goats, and cattle. I mean, ask yourself a question. What's more likely, when the master returns home, that a dog would run to greet him or that a cow would? I mean, some answer this problem. By saying that in a very real sense, Yiftach was turning this whole matter over to Yehoveh. That it would be Jehovah's will and prerogative to determine what it is that would come through the door first. To greet Jephthah and thus becoming the divine sacrifice. Essentially, it would be God doing the choosing of the sacrificial object. However, because the word Asher is employed, almost certainly no animal, clean or unclean, was being contemplated by Jephthah. The ancient rabbis say that probably it was a household slave or servant that Jephthah was envisioning. Indeed, in ancient times, it was the standard protocol for the chief house-servant to race to the master when he approached. Be the very first to greet him. Wash the dust off of his feet. Give him food and drink to refresh him. In fact, that was his job. To fail at it could mean severe punishment because it was considered a great insult to not uh, offer the master of the household that kind of respect. Now, another key word... In the translation. Concerning the words. Concerns the words. Burnt offering. That is. Jephthah said. That who or whichever. Came out of his door. First. He would offer to God as a burnt offering. Now in fact. The Hebrew word used is. Olah. And we've extensively studied. Just what an olah is. So I'm not going to go into it deeply today. You can go back and study the Torah class lessons on the book of Leviticus to gain a more in-depth understanding of the several, very specific categories of sacrifices to the Lord, among which the chief one is the olah. Now, while it's generally correct to define the olah as a burnt offering, in fact, it doesn't necessarily mean the burning up of a sacrifice. It more means a near offering. The Ola is the offering of a gift to God in order to make yourself or maybe somebody else acceptable to Him. It's it's a kind of sacrifice that allows you or another to be declared sufficiently holy to come near to God. In general, this kind of sacrifice is of animals, scripturally, well-defined, ritually clean animals. And the olah is presented to God by means of it being burned up on an altar. The point being that the nature of Jephthah's offering to God here was that it was to be a kind, a very specific kind, of offering that was a gift to God for the purpose of making a person or a nation acceptable to him now whether it was actually burned up on an altar after it was offered wasn't technically a requirement for an olah but let me say again the word used in this passage of judges is olah so the offer of Jephthah to God is, a, is of a very specific, culturally well understood kind of sacrifice, not just some general offer to give something to God in some form or another. Okay, and we'll get back to that shortly. Now, let me be very clear on this point. Despite any teaching you may have heard from your pastor or rabbi on this subject to the effect. That it is simply not possible, given all the circumstances that are present, that Jephthah made a human sacrifice of his own daughter. Now, Steph, follow me here. There is not a single commentary on this subject ever found or written prior to the Middle Ages that propounded any other outcome that indeed Jephthah made a human blood sacrifice of his child. The Middle Ages were an approximately 1,000 year period that began in 500 AD and ended in 1500 AD. It was not until after 500 AD that any Bible commentator, Christian or Jew, theorized that Jephthah did not actually sacrifice his daughter. And I don't know about you, but I think that's highly suspicious in and of itself. Now let me frame this whole thing so you can kind of get the idea of where I'm headed. Imagine the history and the most significant events of World War II being recorded, which of course is what happened. I think we'd all feel that what was recorded during the actual war than what was recorded within a very short time period after the events would represent the most accurate portrayal of what happened. And why it happened, and what people thought about it, and what the consequences were, and so on. Now, might within a decade or two, some new pieces of information add to our understanding? Perhaps. All right, but but only to a degree, only about something specific, only on the margins. Now imagine that here we that that, that we arrive to the year 2000, over 50 years after World War II, and someone writes a book, and completely redefines the cause of World War II, challenges the first-hand accounts of certain significant events, replaces the thoughts of the participants with his own, and modifies the chain of events. We call this rewriting history. And most people with good common sense would have a healthy skepticism that a person who wasn't even alive at the time of World War II, some one-half century later would refute the accounts of thousands of individuals from all walks of life who lived the World War II right nightmare and then wrote it down as it happened. Now, further imagine if 300 years passed and another person wrote a book that said that, well, some of those original accounts of World War II were bogus. And his new understanding of what actually happens. That's the correct one. And how would you approach such a book? If you're like me, I'm not even sure I'd read it. Because it challenges credulity that a person who lived three centuries after World War II, a person who was completely disconnected by time and culture, would somehow have a better idea of what happened and why it happened than somebody who lived during the whole thing. But now, what would you do? if almost 2,000 years after World War II, somebody came along and said, you know what, I have the real truth now. I got it. And it's entirely different than what anybody ever before has stated about the war and all that happened. Well, that's the case here with Jifta and the matter of his daughter. From the time of the actual event... And for the next 2,000 years everyone from the author of the book of Judges to the eyewitnesses to those who handed the story down from generation to generation to the commentators who wrote about it from the ancient times, Jewish and Gentile all agreed that the account was literal and that indeed Jephthah killed his daughter. It was only after two millennia passed that some rabbis and then some Christians decided that something different happened than what was stated in the text. And therefore, what had been universally recognized as the truth was now different. Now, for me, it's difficult to take such new theories very seriously. Like that. Especially when the era of agenda-driven theologies had become so well established by the era of the Middle Ages. However, I think all that taken into account it's still only appropriate to carry this study a little further and show you what it is about some of these biblical passages that did cause some later commentators to believe that Jephthah did not sacrifice his daughter. Now there are two main arguments against Jephthah actually sacrificing his child. And first is an implication in the wording of the actual scriptural passage when it's translated to English. And the second is the doctrinal view that God wouldn't permit such a thing to happen and then allow Yiftok to be considered a hero in later books of the Bible. Now, depending on your specific English translation, Judges eleven thirty-seven 37-40 says... <coughs> that when Yiftok's unnamed daughter understood that she was the subject of the sacrificial offering in her father's vow, her piousness was so great that she voluntarily agreed to accept the consequence. But first, she asked if she could have two months to go away and mourn because she would die, it says, without getting married. Jephthah agreed. Then we're told that after two months she returned and her father did to her what he had vowed, and thus she remained a virgin. Further, it says that Israel established a yearly remembrance of this poor girl, during which time the women of Israel would lament the daughter of Yiftah. Okay. The key word for this issue is virginity. Beginning sometime after 500 AD, some commentators decided that this was code for meaning that her sacrifice was not being killed. Rather, it was agreeing for her to remain unmarried, and thus a virgin for her entire life as a fulfillment of her father's vow to God. Later yet, it was decided that she became a worker at the tabernacle, and that any female tabernacle worker had to be a virgin. The logic was that indeed this this was a great sacrifice because it was considered a terrible thing for a woman of that culture and era to not produce children because that was her main duty in life. And since the text clearly states that this girl was Jephthah's only child, he had no sons, that whether she was killed or whether she simply remained a virgin, Jephthah effectively had no heirs. And thus his family line would end upon his death, or at best, upon his daughter's death. And this was the cause of his great distress as he projected all this ahead. All right, when he cried out, Oh no, my daughter, you're breaking my heart. Why must you be the cause of such pain to me? So here are the reasons used to defend their position by those who believe that the girl was not killed to fulfill her father's vow. First, that Jephthah knew the law of Moses and he knew it prohibited human sacrifice so he could not have done it or wouldn't even have contemplated it. Second, that Jephthah's name appears in the New Testament in Hebrews 11.32 as one of a short list of great people of faith. How could someone who committed a human sacrifice be included in such a list? Third argument, that Yiftach had been anointed with the Holy Spirit of God. And no one under Holy Spirit guidance could commit such a terrible thing as a human sacrifice. Fourth, that there is evidence, indeed, that there was an order of full-time women workers in the tabernacle and they were virgins. Fifth, that what we should do is read into even as though it's not there as vow to God that if what came through the door was an animal then it would become a burnt offering but if it was a human being then that human would be some kind of a vow offering. It would all switch to a vow offering to God by means of their permanent service to God. And sixth when verse 40 says that every year the women of Israel would go to lament Yif talks daughter for four days. In fact, the word laments a bad translation. It should be changed to praise her. Okay? So that's the reasons that the one side says that. Now, I can't deny at all that some or all of the above are entirely possible. The problem is, except for the last point, every other argument is completely subjective. They are people's assumptions. They are their own postulations based on their own morality. The only objectively valid point of this list I just gave you is the sixth one, where they claim that the word lament, lamenting her, is an erroneous translation. And you know what? They're right. It's a bad translation. The Hebrew word is tana. And Tanah in no way means to lament. Rather, it means to recount, to tell a story again. In fact, in later eras, before the Bible was fully written down, there was a group of people who bore the name Tanahs because it was their job to memorize traditions in addition to what had already been written down so they could go around and retell it accurately to others. They were a human library. By translators incorrectly inserting the word lament here, the obvious intent was to make the story of Iftoff's daughter a very sad tale of the girl's death. Instead, say those who believe it was merely the girl's perpetual virginity that was at issue, the word ought to be praise. Praising her for her faith to the Lord such that she gave up the right of motherhood. But that is also erroneous, because again, that tries to characterize the nature of the story retelling to one of admiration, praise, instead of grief, lament. But the word tana is very neutral. It doesn't characterize anything. It certainly doesn't characterize the nature of the story. It's only saying that the story is being retold. So strictly from that point of view, that's no evidence one way or the other that the girl was left alive so in the end it's up to you okay. I'll tell you that while I fall on the side of the girl having been made a human sacrifice I'm not completely closed to what I think is a rather remote possibility that she simply lived out her life as a virgin Now let me offer a couple other things on this and I think we can move on I have no doubt that Jephthah never imagined his own daughter would in any way be involved. He may have been a leader of a gang, but the reasoned way he conducted himself with the elders of Gilead who wanted his help, and when he sought no revenge on his own family for what they did to him, and he approached the enemy king of Ammon in a very thoughtful way without just rushing into battle, all this... Shows that he was concerned about what God thought about all this and it also indicates that he may have been a pretty rough guy but he was no ignorant thug by nature. Yeah, he made a rash vow but haven't we all at one time or another when we were deeply concerned over something made a promise to God that we either in the end had no real control to keep. Or one which we thought a little better of later on. So that hardly means that Jephthah was a rash man. Those who argue that the book of Hebrews wouldn't possibly make Jephthah out a hero if he did such a dastardly and ungodly thing as murdering his own daughter need to consider the great place that King David holds in biblical literature. This is a man that was said to be after God's own heart. This is a man who was promised the throne of the kingdom of God forever, and that it would be accomplished through Messiah. Yet he committed adultery, murder, fornication, had multiple wives, put the Ark of the Covenant in his own personal tent in hopes of gaining personal benefit from it and so many more things I haven't got enough time to talk about it. See, in the end, the Lord will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. The Lord will choose to use whom he chooses to use. How we feel about it How we judge the criteria of His choice is utterly irrelevant to the Father. We need to exercise great care in using our personal doctrines based on our modern cultural mores when trying to determine when or if a biblical character merits either the scorn or the admiration assigned to him or her by Holy Scripture. Jephthah was a flawed man operating like all other Hebrews in that time who were so terribly compromised by evil. He had mixed pagan practices with the Torah had come to all sorts of of, of odd conclusions about what proper worship and proper sacrifice ought to be and yet God used him just as he was for kingdom purposes. Everything Yiftach did was not good. Everything Yiftach did was not in obedience to the Ruach, to the Spirit of God. But some things were. Such as the life of a believer. We will fail far more often than we'll follow God's will as we should. Yet that does not mean that God doesn't love us Or that he has abandoned us. The test is not our perfection. The test is our abiding trust in Yeshua our Savior. Yet it is God's will that we are obedient to him. It is God's will that we follow the pure ways. And not do as Jephthah and so many others did and pervert God's word with man's word. We have a guide and a helper. To accomplish God's will. The guide is the Holy Scripture. The helper is the Holy Spirit. Let us pray that the Lord will give us the strength and desire to rid ourselves of man-made celebrations and doctrinal pronouncements that are familiar and comfortable, but they have no basis in truth and ought to have no place in our lives as followers of the God of Israel. Let us pray that the wonderful things that the Lord has planned for our lives are carried out as Jesus would carry them out. As opposed to how we have witnessed Jephthah carry them out. We'll start chapter 12 next week.